I'm so thankful for brother, Brother Cody and the worship team and leading us this morning to the throne of grace. I want you to open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last of the messages entitled House Rules. And so we've considered the church's message. We've looked at the church's membership. We've talked about the church's management. And we've talked about the church's ministry. Today, we're going to talk about a subject that probably, at least for the preacher, is difficult to talk about. For you, it might be difficult to listen to and hear, but is near and dear to every one of you, as close as the seat of your pants. We're going to talk about the church's money. All right, the church's money. And uh, there's... Tons of jokes out there about the church's money, and I was thinking about the pastor who was in a building program, and uh, they had calculated all the costs and everything, and he brought back the report to the church, and he said, here's the, the bad news. It's going to cost us $500,000 to finish the building project. And he said, but here's the good news. We have the money. He said, but here's some more bad news. It's still in your pockets. (laughs) But as we think about the church's money, we got to do some thinking about America's money for just a moment. America is the richest nation in the history of the world. We're going to contextualize this for America. While 2.5 billion people around the world live on less than $2 per day, and nearly and one billion people in the world live on less than one dollar per day. America, most Americans live on more than nine dollars a day, many of them much more than that. If we think about the last quarter of 2021, consumer debt had risen, and this is what's crazy. We're the richest nation in the world, but listen to this: consumer debt had risen to $16.5 trillion by the end of 2021. And I'm sure that that is still ticking up as we speak. All of this consumerism in America is fueled by a deeper heart issue that we call materialism. The Bible calls it the love of money or the love of riches. A sixth of the gospel content in the New Testament, the gospels, deals with money, stewardship of money. Jesus spoke on money one out of three parables. The content of those parables dealt with stewardship of God's money. And so... When we think about Jesus, he wasn't fundraising or leading a capital campaign. The reason that Jesus spoke on money matters is because money matters. It matters to us in the way that we operate in the world. It matters to uh, others on how you treat them with money. It matters to God's house because collectively as we steward God's money we're able to fund God's ministry. And so, I've got a a last rule for you 
that I want to share. Just to kind of, let's put those up there, Miss Sue, and let's go over them. I hope you can see them. Keep the main thing the main thing. This house shall be called a house of prayer. Follow your leaders. Specifically, follow the leadership of Christ. Come hungry, leave happy. That's what we're talking about. If you come hungry for the Word of God, then you will uh, be fed the Word of God and you'll leave ready to share the Word of God. Family comes first. And we talked about how your duty to your, your biological family, your, your family at home with you, uh, the people that you live with, is a picture of your duty to your, fam- your faith family. And then rule number six, and this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, okay? But when Allison sets food in front of my kids and they complain about whatever they've gotten or we go out to the store and they get something and that's not exactly what they wanted and they start to complain, rule number six applies in my house, okay? And she came up with this, not me. So I have to give all credit to Allison for this one. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. You get what you get and you don't throw it. Now, like I said, that's tongue-in-cheek. But here's the, the root of that. And the root of that rule is that we should be content with what God has given us. And, and Paul is going to say that godliness with contentment is great gain. So gain is not a bad thing. The Bible teaches us to desire, to, to, have, to have a desire, to be zealous but, and to, to achieve more and to want more. But it's not about material things. And gain in, in worldly standards is going to lead to a lot of heartache, is what Paul is going to say. But gain according to God's standards, which is holiness and righteousness and seeking the kingdom, that is great gain. Meaning, you're really going to be blessed. You really will be blessed. So would you stand with me? We're really just going to read verses 6 through 8, okay? So Romans, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I had Romans in my Sunday school class. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, But godliness with contentment is what kind of gain? Great gain. It's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world... I don't know about you, but I didn't come in the world with anything. I came in my birthday suit. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with this, with these, we will be content. Now that's a declaration. And I hope that that's the declaration of your heart. That you will... Be content with that which God provides, supplies. And He's going to supply more than you need by His riches and glory. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We pray, Father, that You would help us apply the words of this passage to our hearts and then go and live that truth out in our daily lives, in our daily walk. Father, we pray that as others look at us in the way that we handle our money, the way that our church stewards our money, the way that... We take what you have blessed us with and we build your kingdom with that. As the world looks on, Lord, they would learn what it's like to depend on you and have faith in you. And Father, that they would see us trusting in you for everything that we have and everything that we need. Giving you the thanks and the glory because it's to do your name. Lord, we pray that now you would give us hearts to hear, ears to hear, hearts to receive. And uh, Lord, the grace to live out. 
what you tell us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. So, in the passage, we really only have two points from the passage. We could make a million points from the passage, but there's really two main points that I want to point out to you today. And the first is a warning, and the second is a way out. So let's hear first the warning against materialism. We call it materialism. The Bible says it's the love of money, but here it is. It's a warning from Paul. Now, he tells Timothy at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, here's, here's what they're imagining now. Listen to this. It says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Listen to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now those are some strong words. And there, there is a warning in there. And Paul points out that these false teachers that are in the church of Ephesus are going to tear the church apart if Timothy doesn't deal with the false teachers. And if he doesn't correct them and reprove them. And he says, teach these things. Urge these things. Make sure that everyone knows the truth about this. Now, the church in Ephesus wasn't the most, was the the grandest church that existed in the Mediterranean world. It didn't have the most money, but there obviously were some people in the church that were of great financial means and flaunted that and didn't know how to steward the money that God had blessed them with. And so Paul wants the church to know how to manage. God's money. How to use God's money. And so the warning is against materialism. And it's a warning against these false teachers. He describes them and says they're puffed up with conceit. And they understand nothing. So these are men that are in leadership position. But really God has not called them to that position. And we've already said that if you put someone in a position of leadership that's not ready for that position. They're going to get puffed up. They're going to get the big head, but then something eventually is going to deflate them. And they're going to fall from that position. And what they're doing is, because they're puffed up and they have no knowledge, they're stirring up controversy in the church. So sound doctrine produces unity in the spirit, but false doctrine is going to produce quarrels and dissension. Envy, slander, evil suspicions. And you know what that evil suspicion is about, right? It's like you, you look at somebody and you imagine that they're thinking something bad. You, you ever done that? 
You imagine that they're thinking something, or they've got a problem, or whatever, and you're imagining all these things. And when you finally get the nerve to confront it, that person's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've always said it's really dangerous to, it's always, it's, it's a really dangerous thing to worry about what other people are thinking. Because what other people are thinking is none of your business. Until they tell you, then you can make it your business. But until they tell you, don't worry about what other people are thinking. But here's the thing. There was, these people, these false teachers are stirring up dissension. And they're stirring up evil suspicions and constant friction. Man, that, that sounds like the church I want to go to. Constant friction. No, thank God our church is not that way. Thank God we love each other at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. Thank God that God has blessed us with a sweet unity here at this church. But here's the thing. All of this is fueled by an unhealthy desire for gain. These people in leadership positions, maybe even elders, pastors of the church, they are doing everything that they're doing so that they can make money. And what they believe is that godliness is a mean Means for great gain. So in other words, they're thinking, they're taking the gospel and they're distorting the gospel. They're taking God's word, they're distorting God's word. And basically what they're teaching is, if you do this, then God will bless you material, materially and financially. Hey, doesn't that sound a lot like some of the preachers today? That are filling the pulpits across America, preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Listen, any health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that teaches you that if you do the things that the Bible says, that you will be blessed materially, that is an abomination and it is contrary to sound doctrine. It is not the truth of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that Jesus came to deal with your sin problem. And He came to set you free from bondage and sin by His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. The Bible doesn't teach us that if we keep the words of Scripture or we believe in the Gospel, that we're going to have a materially prosperous life. And nor should the Gospel be used in order for people to make money off of you. It's It's false. And so Paul calls it out and says exactly what it is. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, materialism first is divisive, or divisive, however you pronounce that, potato, potato. I can't love you if I want your stuff at the same time. That's why God warns us against covetousness and why it's mentioned all over the New Testament as well that we shouldn't covet what another person has. When I'm coveting what you have, when I want what you have, I want your position, I want your things, I want your, your life, I want your, your wife, I want your family, I want all the things that you have and I'm coveting what I have done is I've devalued you and valued what you have more than you. And so it's not loving anymore. I can't love you and covet what you have at the same time. It's impossible. And so there's always going to be constant friction among a materialistic church. And we always want more than what we have when we covet. James talks about this. 
Uh, our brother James, he says in chapter 4, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. And we understand a lack of prayer contributes to all of this, but we also see that covetousness and jealousy contributes to envy and slander in the church. I can't love you and envy what you have or envy you at the same time. So materialism is divisive. And then we look, we think secondly though, materialism is also deceptive. Notice what he says in verse 5 again. He says uh, about these people that are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Notice he says deprived of the truth, meaning they don't understand the truth. They can't come to understanding the truth because of their desires that are within them. And then it says imagining, imagining. So they've replaced the truth for a lie and they're imagining something that's that's untrue. And what they're imagining is that godliness is a means of gain. That if I do what the Bible says, or if I uh, follow these rules, or I get this status in the church, then it's going to be gain for me. And that doesn't always necessarily mean monetary gain. It can also mean just positional gain. It can, it can mean status. It can mean uh, getting a, a, a certain position in the church of authority that you think that you want. And, and these people, what they're doing is they're deceiving themselves. The desire for riches stems from the idea that somehow you will be happy if you have more. Desire for position or the desire for fame, wealth and happiness, uh, health equals happiness. Listen, if you aren't happy now, getting whatever it is you think that you want isn't going to solve the problem. It's not going to make you happy. All the stuff in the world can't make you happy. In the early 20th century, uh, you probably don't know of these folks, but have you ever heard of the Wendells? And he, I don't see a single hand that went up. But do you know that the Wendells were as famous as the Trumps are today in the 21st century, back in the beginning of the 20th century. They had more money than anybody else in Manhattan. The Wendells did. Rich and famous family. Their family owned more than 150 properties in Manhattan. John G. Wendell and his sisters were some of the most miserly people of all time. Although they had received a huge inheritance from their parents, they spent very little of it and did all they could to keep their wealth to themselves. John... The the brother was able to influence five out of six of his sisters to never marry so that they could keep the wealth in the family. They lived in the same shuttered mansion in Manhattan in New York City for 50 years. They had no electricity. They had no telephone. When the last sister died in 1931, her estate was valued at more than $100 million. 
Her only dress was one that she made for herself. And she had worn it for 25 years. The Wendells had such compulsion to hold on to all of their possessions that they lived like paupers. And they were miserable people. And you don't know of a single good thing that the Wendells ever accomplished. A sobering truth that Paul reminds us of is the same thing that Job came to realize. We brought nothing into the world and we can take none of it with us when we die. Job 1.21 says, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are no U-Hauls attached to hearses. He, and, and listen, the, the old saying used to be, He who dies with the most toys wins. And I had a t-shirt whenever I was in high school that said that I got from church camp or something like that. I didn't understand what it meant. I do now. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And it's the truth. And so, rather than living for materials, we should be living for eternity. And realizing that materialism is, is dangerous. It's... It's deceptive. It's divisive. When we think about the danger of it. He, he goes on and he says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall. I want you to think about that word fall. And if you, you underline or you highlight anything in your Bible, go ahead and underscore that word fall in your Bible because there is a fall coming for the one who desires riches. It's dangerous. There's a fall that takes place. I remember when we were in North, uh, excuse me, uh, West Virginia. I was about to say North Carolina. We were in West Virginia uh, up on Bradshaw Mountain on a mission trip. Uh, and like I said, if I tell this story before, that's okay. You've probably forgotten it by now. But uh, I was up on Bradshaw Mountain, and we were, they were working up on the, uh, the top of the mountain, the very tip top of the mountain, up there on that top of that mountain is a church that was built by retired missionaries from Africa that came back. Bob and Oki Blevins came back to build that, that church on top of the mountain. And what was in that church previously was a bar, and not just a bar, it was a brothel, because uh, right, right where the pulpit stands now today, Previously, there there was a it was a go go stage, and the the pole came down right where the pulpit stands today. But they had in their heart, God put on their heart to turn that brothel into the church, and they were reaching their community for Jesus. Well, anyway, we joined in that mission, and we went to help build some things. And it, it, see, the thing was, the kids would play basketball outside on the yard, and there's a basketball goal, and they would shoot the ball. But because they were up on top of Bradshaw Mountain, one of the highest points in West Virginia, whenever they'd shoot the ball, the ball would go over the goal or past the goal, and it would just go down the hill, and it would continue on down for, for thousands of, a thousand feet down to the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> and so they kept losing basketballs. So we took a fence, and we put the fence up. Well, one of the things that, one of the projects that we had decided we'd do once we got there, we didn't know and prepare ahead of time for this, but... Um, one of our men, our deacons in our church, uh, Michael Beasley, 
he was working back there behind the church, and one of the air conditioners was falling off of the back side of the church. And they'd shore it up, but it'd keep falling off. And it was falling down. And so he went to the back side of the church to begin to shore that thing back up. And after a little while, I started looking around. You know, it's, it's break time. You know, we hadn't seen him. And, and, you know, it was about time to go back to work. Where is Michael Beasley? Where'd he go? And after a little while, he came staggering up the back side of the church, the mountain. And he had cuts and scrapes all over him. He was white as a ghost. And he said, man, if I hadn't have caught a hold of that tree, I'd have been gone. And what happened? Well, he lost his footing. And he fell a couple hundred feet before he grabbed hold of a little bitty twig that was sticking out of the ground that kept him from falling all the way down. All the way down to the bottom of the gorge. You know, there's a fall coming for all of us who trust in our riches. Because one day, you're going to realize that riches aren't enough. They can't make your heart beat one more time. And if we put our faith and our trust in anything other than Jesus, we've committed that idolatry, we'll stand before Him naked with nothing. And if we don't have the righteousness of Jesus as our covering, we will be ashamed before Him. Materialism is dangerous. Materialism is destructive. It talks about senseless and harmful desires. Ruin and destruction. I want us to, if you'll indulge me for just a few moments, I want us to listen to Dave Ramsey's testimony. How many of you listen to Dave Ramsey? How many of you, does anyone know his testimony already? Yeah? Well, we're going to hear some of it, okay? So let's just listen to it for just a few moments together. Selling real estate for a builder. Uh, I started buying and selling real estate in my very early 20s, just a couple of years after getting married. And it worked. A little bit of family connection with some bankers and stuff that knew me and trusted me. I don't know why. I was 22 years old, 23 years old. But um, they started loaning me money, and I got rich. I ended up with about $4 million worth of real estate, about $3 million worth of debt. So that difference is a $1 million net worth. And at 25, 26 years old, I was making $250,000 a year cash taxable income. That was amazing. I mean, the neighborhood I grew up in, 20000 bucks a month, that's rich. So I was rich. I mean, we, we did all the stuff we had dreamed of doing, and uh, I'd always wanted a Jaguar. That was my car. I'd, I'd dreamed of having a Jaguar. I set that goal back when I was in college, and so I got my Jaguar, man, and everything seemed to be going right. It was incredible. And uh, our first baby was born, Denise, and then um, and, and we're cooking along, and you know, about the time we started going to church, and I met God in the process. And, and weird thing happened. It was right about that time that everything started falling apart. September 22nd, 1988. I remember that. The uh, banks got sold. Uh, main bank we were dealing with, we had 1200000 with them in 90-day notes because we were buying property and flipping it. And that bank got sold to another bank. And the guys in another state, in another city, looked down and said, you know, there's a kid 26 years old here, owes us $1,200,000. This is ridiculous. 
uh, let's limit this relationship, which is banker talk for call his notes and screw up his life. So they called her notes, gave me 90 days to come up with a million bucks. There's no way. Started to crash. I couldn't stop. Word got out on the street that I was in trouble, and I was in trouble. And our second largest lender, we had 800000 out with them. They called our notes about 60 days later after the first one. So we had less than six months to come up with $2 million, and it's all in real estate. You can't sell real estate fast enough to pay that bill. We'd never lost money on a deal. We'd never been late a minute on a note, ever. That didn't matter, though. They just uh, decided that they were going to limit their relationship. They were in freak-out mode in the, in the economy that we were in right then. And uh, those two hits started a crash that we fought for two and a half years. No one wins without paying a price. The scripture says no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. We sold everything as fast as we could. And it doesn't matter what you do. When you pile up stupid as high as I piled it, it's going to fall down and you can't catch it all. So no matter how hard I fought, no matter how smart I was, no matter how much I kept my word, no matter how much I was going to do the right thing and pay everybody, it didn't matter. I couldn't control the outside variables. And I remember being so scared. Sharon and I, there was a lot of separation between us. She's pretty freaked out and scared. Pretty ticked at her husband. I didn't have any answers. I was the guy that had had all the answers. The weird thing was we paid the $4 million down all the way to 378000 It was unbelievable. Uh, but some of the little ones, we had been sued hundreds of times, it felt like. I don't know exactly how many it was. It was close to 100 easy. And one of those little lawsuits decided on that they were going to execute on the judgment and they uh, arranged with the sheriff's department to come take the furniture out of our house on a Friday morning. So September 22nd of 1988, we met with a bankruptcy attorney. That night, we signed bankruptcy papers. I'll never forget that. He filed them on Friday morning. So we filed bankruptcy on the 23rd to keep the sheriff out of our house and keep him from taking the baby bed. I was out of gas. I didn't have enough emotional energy to fight anymore. I mean, we were just beat up and beat down. Right after that, we started finding out God's Word had something to say about money. And this really wasn't the end of the story. So I met God on the way up, but I got to know Him on the way down, without a doubt. I started studying biblical finance and comparing what the Bible and common sense has to say about money, comparing that with what I had learned in academia, because I've got all these letters and licenses after my name that says I'm supposed to know something about money, but there I sat broke. I started applying new ideas like a budget and like an emergency fund and like getting out of debt and staying out of debt. And we had a guy at church come up to me not long after and said, hey, can we have a cup of coffee with you and your wife? We're going through financial garbage and, you know, it's about to tear our marriage apart. It looks like you all made it. How did you make it? And we're like, well, we barely did. So we'll talk to you, though. You know, so we had a cup of coffee with him. I guess it was my first financial counseling session, probably. I got a budget out. I remember getting the yellow pad out and saying, dude, you got to do a budget. Tell me where you're... And I'm sitting there trying to look at his numbers. And I thought, man, I can... It's a really work. I can really show people how to win with this. And I could see it instantly in other people's situations. I guess because we had been there. I got a friend of mine that says, having a testimony is a great idea, but getting one's a pain. The scripture says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it.
Well, you can you can see the rest of his testimony online if you'd like to watch that and listen to hear what he has to say. But here it is: a millionaire is bankrupt in just a couple of months. Uh, and how many have we seen fall before? We realize that materialism is dangerous and it can be destructive. But lastly, on that I, on that warning note, I want to tell you: materialism is damning. And when we think about that, it ought to be sobering. Because he goes on to say, those who desire the rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now notice that it doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money. And it doesn't say that it is root of all evil, it says it's the root of all kinds of evil. So it is a root of all kinds of evil, the love of money is. In other words, money itself is amoral. It is not a moral thing. Having money is not a bad thing as long as your money doesn't have you. And the thing is, money is a lot like a brick. Dave talks about this. He says money is like a brick. I could take a brick and I can smash a window, smash a car, I could knock you out with it. And that's doing the wrong thing with a brick. Or I could take a brick and I could lay it in its course along with thousands of other bricks and I can build a beautiful building like the one we're in right now. So money is that way. You can do good with money or you can let money take over. Now Jesus speaks about this. He says, no one can serve two masters. If money is your master, listen to what he says, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He also says in Mark 8, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Paul finishes the text here in verse 10 by saying, It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And who do we think about whenever we think about that? We think about Judas Iscariot, don't we? We have Judas and he's there and he's, he's dipping the morsel in the cup with Jesus and, and taking that side by side with Jesus. And just a few hours later, he's throwing, he's, he's throwing all of that away for 30 pieces of silver. And then whenever he tries to give the money back, and the Sanhedrin says, we won't take that, that's blood money. He goes out in the field and he hangs himself. I also think about uh, the two Ananias and Sapphira that sold a property but wanted to get position in the church, wanted to get this, uh, this love from people in the church. So they kept back some of the money and said, hey, we've, we've sold this land and we, we give you know, all the money, but then they didn't give all the money. They kept some of it back. So they lied to the church. But as they did that, Peter said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And both of them were carried out. One right after another. Well, we see the warning against materialism. But now let's hear the way out for just a moment. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 
See, there's some fleeing from materialism that has to happen. And it needs to start right here in the church. We need to run away from it. We need to get away from it. And we need to quit flirting with it. We can, see, here's the thing. You can either flee temptation or you can flirt with temptation. And many of us like to flirt with temptation. Uh, you know, online shopping, click, click, click. Or magazines to look at all the things you don't have. Catalogs to look at all the things you don't have. And I remember whenever I was in high school, my uh, sisters used to do Mary Kay parties where they sit around and they look at all these wonderful products to beautify themselves that they didn't have. They end up spending hundreds of dollars at the Mary Kay parties. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, this is not just a 21st century problem. This problem has existed from the beginning of the world. We've always coveted, we've always wanted what we don't have. From the very beginning, whenever Eve looked at the apple and saw that it was desirable, and she wanted it, maybe not an apple, whatever it might be. We always see it depicted as an apple. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can either flee it or flirt with it. Don't flirt with it. Many people flirt with temptation. They find out they can't handle it once they have it, once they cross that line. Have you ever watched a suspense thriller type movie? And the good guy is running from the bad guy. The good good lady is <laughs> usually a lady and she's screaming. And she's running away. And she runs right into the room where the killer is. When you flee temptation, you can't run right back into temptation. You have a direction. So Paul says, flee temptation, flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. All of these things are the character traits of Christ. We're putting on Christ is what Paul tells us to do in Romans. He tells us to put on that character and pursue that. And if you're going to pursue Christ... You're pursuing the man who is blessed more than any other man that's ever walked the face of the planet. When we look at people today and we look at their things and their stuff and their talents and their abilities and their good looks and their health, we say they're blessed. But when you look at Jesus, you wouldn't see all of those things in Jesus. You would see a man who is humble, a man who had very, very little means on this earth. He even said foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He had very little on this earth. But we put on His character. And all of a sudden, the way God looks at you, He says, you are truly blessed. You are blessed. And so we flee temptation and we pursue righteousness, goodness, Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Then he tells him to fight the good fight of faith. So we fight with our faith. Do you trust that God will take care of your necessities? I saw some heads come up, but I didn't hear any amens. Do you trust that God will take care of your necessities? So Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Man, that ought to be the declaration of your heart and your soul today. As you look at all of the stuff that you've accumulated over the years. 
You ought to think about some of it that you could give away. Some of it that you could probably sell. Some of it that probably needs to just go in the trash. Because it's junk. And you ought to look at all of that stuff and say, I've got food and clothing, a roof over my head and shoes on my feet. I'll be content in the Lord. I've got what I need. God doesn't promise to take care of all the things you want, but God does promise to take care of what you need. Let me read it to you. Paul says in Philippians, And my God, I want, you to, I want you to say this with me, okay? And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? Every want? Every need. To our God and Father be glory. Forever and ever, amen, Paul says. Do we fight with faith in God? and we find contentment in Him? Fundamentally, discontentment is your declaration that what God has given you isn't good enough. If you're discontent, what you're saying is, God, what you've given me is not good enough. I need more. And then lastly, we form the habit of giving. Notice what he says. Uh, he says, but as for the rich... In this present age, in verse 17, charge them not to be haughty. That means think more of themselves than they ought to. Esteem themselves highly. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, money in and of itself, material possessions in and of themselves are not wrong. They're meant to be enjoyed by God. It is the blessing of God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. But listen to what we should do. They are to do good. So we should take the things that God has given us, enjoy them, and use them for good, and to be rich in good works, do good things with them, and to be generous and ready to share. Listen, to take that wallet out, open it up, and share what God has given you with someone else. I have never missed a single thing I've ever given away. Never missed a single thing I've ever given away. And the same is true for you. Thus storing up. Now this is the important part. And we'll end on this, okay? He says, Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, that which is truly life. Material, material possessions and materialism, that's deceptive. But everything that you deposit in heaven's treasury is kept forever in the place where there is truly life. And you think you're going to live it up here on this earth and not worry about spiritual things. But one day, the clock is going to tick its last tick in your life. And you'll realize that this place, this world, was simply a testing ground of faith whether you really truly believed in what God said about who you are, about who He is, and about what He did for you. And let me remind you of what He did and how much He did for you. His one and only Son, the most valuable, precious thing in heaven, came and lived on this earth. He lived a sinless life for your sin and for my sin. He died on the cross. 
Then on the third day, He was raised again. He's alive today. He's seated on the throne. He rules over everything. And He says, for the one who fully is devoted to Him, He will take full responsibility for that life and give you eternal life as a gift. Not something that you earn or you work for, but simply as a gift. And now what He wants from you is a life of devotion. To become a disciple of Jesus. To live like Him. To take on His character. If you've never made that decision before, you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that now. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. He's offering you the opportunity to say no to worldly things and say yes to Jesus today. Wherever you are, whoever you are, He's calling you. And He's saying, My offer, my offer for you, the free gift of salvation, is right here on the table. All you have to do is take it. And so you pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things that I know are wrong and I have failed to do what I know is right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you lived a sinless life. You went to the cross with nothing on this earth but your own life. And you gave it for me. So Jesus, I ask you to forgive me Come into my heart. Make me a new person today. Forgive me. And Jesus, give me eternal life. I'll spend the rest of my life here on this earth loving you and living for you. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I hope the truth of this passage has resonated in your hearts. And I pray that as we receive this truth collectively as a church, we'll all have a vision for what God wants to do with our money. And I know that if we apply this truth, God's going to supply all of our needs as a church. And today... If you have trusted in the truth of God's Word and you've made your declaration of faith in Him, we want to know. And today, if you're saying, I I really have gotten off track and I need to get it back. I need to get it right. We want to know about that so we can pray for you. So this is your invitation. If you're looking for a church home, we want to welcome you here. And God's leading you here to join Myrtle, Myrtle Grove Baptist Church and we welcome you as well. This is your invitation, so you come and share what God has put on your heart. Don't hesitate. Our prayer counselors are coming. Let's sing.